When Henry David Thoreau, in 1851, took to the lectern at the Concord Lyceum, he proclaimed to those in attendance, I wish to speak a word for nature. The speech that followed was written in response to, and in the context of, the rapidly growing materialist, consumerist, and utilitarian culture reveling in the exploitation and abhorrence of wilderness, to an audience stocked with civilization's most fervent champions. With the conclusion of his speech, he declared, In wildness is the preservation of the world. And with these words, Thoreau marked a turning point in American thought away from superficial talk of nature derived from romanticism in excess and towards a more meaningful, sincere understanding of wilderness. In much of the same spirit, I wish to speak a word for music, for in music is the preservation of the human spirit. And much like Thoreau, when I say this in academic settings, I often find myself speaking to the countless critics and opponents of music which dominate our musicological discourse. To explain, allow me to speak plainly on behalf of the students, colleagues, and mentors I have had the pleasure of working with and learning from over the years, that music academia has a disenchanted, even defeated demeanor in how we talk about music, where most of the discourse leans towards critique rather than celebration of this elemental human practice. And I've heard every argument for why this is from the side of scientism or logic, as people like to call it, and I'm still not convinced. And I think it is a disservice towards this art that we all claim to love to be so scared to acknowledge and revere its ineffable power to move people, communities, nations, and then civilizations. From a personal place, as someone who has had a prominent eco-musicologist chuckle at the thought that music's aesthetic value has any part to play in environmental activism, or who has had a college friend drop from musicology after being told this field is not a place for talking about music that you like, or had a very experienced musicologist lament to me the sorry, disenchanted state of music academia he's witnessed take place over the course of his long career, and just so many more. I feel compelled to speak on behalf of those like me, who want, or need, a more meaningful musicology. To be sure, critique has its place and is surely necessary for a holistic approach to any field, but the balance has swung much too far in favor of negativity and critique in recent decades. Much like Thoreau, but without personal delusions of grandeur, I assure you, I simply wish to lend my voice to a larger academic and even societal turn towards all things wild, wonderful, and indescribable, in the face of manifold existential and environmental threats we face today. And in doing so, know that I will stumble. Learning and growing are an active process, after all. But I would rather stumble on my way towards something real than float along on a stream of docile complacency. Some musicologists who come here out of morbid curiosity may write me off as a clown, or on a lighter note, some may even listen and go, ah, he's from Colorado, that makes sense. But if there's anything I've learned from my near decade in music academia, it's that nothing meaningful is agreeable to everyone. And not to mention, only listening to people you 100% agree with is not a great way to navigate through scholarship or even life, a trend I've noticed in recent years. Further, the most elementary study of history shows that casting anyone as a clown merely does not preclude them from standing on the right side of history in the long run. So in this, I welcome discomfort, I welcome disagreement, but above all, I welcome conversation, for that is what I hope to cultivate here on Dirty Musicology. And these are but a few of the reasons this way of musicology is going to be dirty. 
with other reasons subtle or overt showing themselves as the podcast goes on. And lastly, I do not speak with authority here, only passion and a hope for doing my part in building the better future I know we can all have through the medium I know best, music. And that is why a part of this podcast will include interviews and conversations with people in the fields of musicology, philosophy, ecology, and of course, musicians themselves, much wiser and knowledgeable in these matters than I am. But along the way, I will offer my own thoughts and ideas as well, all in the hope that I am stumbling towards something meaningful to me, and ideally, to others too. And so, without further ado, I would like to speak a word for music, and how it exerts power over us in ways that subvert our very epistemologies, our systems of understanding the world around us, and make a case for a sincere academic confronting of music's ineffable power to enrapture those who listen, and especially those who create, in the context of environmentalism. Before I return to Thoreau and other philosophers who have largely been dismissed, I want to begin with the scope of the problem that the eco-musicologist is working against today in music academia. Simply put, it is the cult of Aristotelian logic. Academia itself is built on this very specific kind of logic that's become a cult, in which no middle ground exists between that which has been certified as correct or good for centuries in the West, and knowledge forms the Western subaltern and elsewhere have, which have been deemed bad knowledge. One of the main reasons we have normative thinking and subaltern thinking categories is a result of a late medieval early renaissance cleaning up of European thought around the idealization of Aristotle, where hegemonic powers of high society sorted systems of knowledge into categories of right and wrong, and not always with the best intentions. To this end, late Platonics, astrologers, anything labeled heathen, and so forth, were sorted into bad knowledge, with Aristotle and company sorted into good knowledge. This good knowledge became the basis of what we in the West call logic, reason, and rational thinking. This is also a process my friend Runa Hjarno Rasmussen at Nordic Animism calls the Cartesianizing of the West, a term I absolutely adore. This insidious, systemic cleansing of thought from Europe is what put logic in the dominant, accepted way of thinking and everything else into the waste bucket of esotericism or irrationalism, and later reared its beautiful head as romanticism, now begrudgingly taught in the modern classroom as if our dignified professors are embarrassed of this regrettable episode of European history in which our greatest artists and thinkers had enough of this repressive cult. This is the narrow incomplete system of logic which our academic institutions are based upon, forever pledging to champion it as the right way of thinking, casually ignoring that so many of the atrocities over the last centuries are a result of the fruit this logic bore, used to justify slavery, eugenics, colonialism, environmental exploitation. All of this was justified with logic and with science. Not with deism, not with animism, not with transcendentalism, and to be sure, this dogmatic rationality has had its fair share of opponents throughout history that you will not hear much about in core philosophy courses. People like Uxkull, Spinoza, Bergson, and more who I will be revisiting in later episodes dedicated to subaltern philosophies and epistemologies. And now, the cult of logic has not only long outrun its course, but in memorable history has actively worked against our own survival as a species, and continues to do so in our inability to reckon with environmental collapse by our own hand in the Anthropocene. And this is why these subaltern ways of understanding the world around us are needed now more than ever, I think, and definitely deserve renewed attention.
And so now I turn to one of my favorite scholars in this camp, Branka Arshik, and her book Bird Relics. In this book, Arsik reframes Thoreau as a vitalist thinker. Vitalism, of course, is illogical in the framework I just described, and believes there's a life force beyond chemicals and physics. And this was resulting from the grieving process of Thoreau's beloved brother's early death, thereby placing Thoreau in a new materialist context, which I will define in a moment. Arsik begins her book with a firm stance similar to mine when she writes, Thoreau suggested that the filtering out of the fantastic from the real is generated by the dogmatic and critical epistemologies of the West, expounded from Plato to Leibniz to Kant. Those epistemologies are predicated on the idealistic understanding of truth as non-contradictory. And since the incredible couldn't be deposited in the real in a non-contradictory manner, both because it is in itself often contradictory, and because it would render reality simultaneously credible and incredible, and consequently cancel the conceptual divides that generate non-contradictory truthful thinking about the real, our thought is disciplined by mainstream epistemologies that produce a kind of magical transubstantiation. Thinking is made to dematerialize what is really incredible into what is only imagined to be so. Now, to define what new materialism is, the term proposes a cultural theory that radically rethinks the dualisms so central to our modern thinking and always begins its analysis from how these oppositions between things like nature and culture, matter and mind, the human and inhuman, are produced in academic work and rhetoric. Again, the process and framework I described moments ago. The Philosophy of Movement blog traces three different kinds of new materialism, but notes that all three, quote, share at least one common theoretical commitment to problematize the anthropocentric and constructivist orientations of most 20th century theory in a way that encourages closer attention to the sciences by the humanities. And Narsik's work, along with her contemporaries and predecessors, are doing just this through their work that questioned the stability of the epistemological ground academia stands on. In other words, the only reason we have a solid line drawn between the real and the imaginary, as Arsik puts it, is because Aristotle, Leibniz, and Kant drew it there. And we as Western society have done insufficient work to move it, question it, or even eliminate it. Because most of us are comfortable with where it is, and have spent centuries building our great society with this ethos. And I say this ironically, of course. With this in mind, Arsic goes on to explain, using an entry in Thoreau's Walden, that one of the ways in which we systemically demarcate the real and the imaginary borders is found in our academic tendency to use words as metaphors for what they represent rather than literal meanings. From page 244 of Walden. It would seem as if the very language of our parlors would lose all of its nerve and degenerate into palaver holy. Our lives pass at such remoteness from its symbols and its metaphors and tropes as necessarily so far-fetched through slides and dumbwaiters, as it were. In other words, the parlor is so far from the kitchen and the workshop that dinner even is only the parable of dinner commonly. Arsic comments on this passage, writing, Living in a parlor distanced from things we believe that we are talking about, distanced from the kitchen and the workshop where life is in the making, where it is busy changing, we end up living among far-fetched metaphors. Our epistemologies have filtered the wondrous out of the real to reach a truth that has in fact relocated us in an imaginary real. Paradoxically, we have ended up living in a fantasized real from which the fantastic has been expelled. All of this, especially this separation between word and experience, is immediately relevant to how we work as musicologists. 
for we ourselves are often stuck in parlors, speaking of metaphors and ideas more often than we find ourselves experiencing music as something living, breathing, and entirely real. Historically, for composers and performers who immerse themselves in a living, breathing music experience, music has been a matter of faith, purpose, identity, and even existence. But as we musicologists work from the parlor, so to speak, distanced from all of this, we find ourselves similarly beginning to discuss music as a word, a metaphor, rather than as it truly is, a powerful and influential force of the world we inhabit. So if, and only if, we are to consider what Thoreau and Arsic have claimed, we may come to realize that we live in a modern society that thrives off of disenchantment, because a disenchanted populace is easier to control and exploit, for it breeds every master's favorite disposition, nihilism and apathy. So long as we disregard an obstacle as not worth the effort to overcome, or even imaginary and thus unreal, there's no reason to cross it. But luckily for us, while there are those who thrive off of taking the wonder out of life, from disenchanting us, we still have musicians, artists, poets, and writers among us who thrive off of keeping the wonder firmly planted in our everyday life where it belongs. In her article aptly titled, This Enchantment is No Delusion, Rochelle Johnson writes that we in academia have indeed gone far enough as to write off imaginative or enchanted thinking as overly romantic, idealistic, or naive, such as the whole of Walden, for instance, as delusional, to more easily strip them of any merit they would otherwise have if confronted with good and honest academic intentions. The intentions of understanding, in other words. Johnson begins her article by stating firmly that her and others' work in New Materialism is to explicitly confront the problematic, quote, scholarly tendency of recent decades to regard the pursuit of topics such as enchantment as unproductive and unsophisticated. Because those of us, musicians of course included, who work in the arts and humanities have been especially susceptible to criticisms regarding the practice of naive romanticism and fantasies of transcendence. Claims that again rely on the very flawed, incomplete cult of logic. And once again, as a recurring theme, Johnson uses Thoreau as her muse, for he was the one who originally wrote, This enchantment is no delusion, rather it is fact when he recounted an out-of-body experience in the face of the sublime atop Maine's Mount Katahdin in his essay, Katahdin. Johnson and Thoreau both argue through their work that enchantment is not a product of naive or misinterpreted imagination, but of sympathy. A sympathy so extreme that you feel that you are one with the essence of the world around you through mindful commitment to something beyond the self. In other words, when one removes the human from the center of our understanding, and rather places it in equilibrium with what is around it, as Walt Whitman would explore and advocate for throughout Leaves of Grass. In her article, Johnson goes on to explain that enchantment is a plausible bodily response to total consciousness of inter- and intra-relations of all life forms around oneself. She comes to call this interconnectedness spirit, and finds that the spirit must be understood as the vital force connecting the corporeal human body, the body's material surroundings, and the realm of intellect, of thought, and imagination. The most relevant part of this article relating to eco-musicology is when she states, These findings in new materialism force scholars to accept as agentic matter the many ways in which human beings experience their material intraactivity in manners sensory, emotional, spiritual, and even transcendent. The stuff of music. She goes on to say, rather than dismissing such forms of the agentic intraactivity of matter as naive, hopelessly romantic, or completely culturally constructed, 
we would benefit from exploring them as products of complex agential materiality, including the matter of culture. And to make all this more urgent than a simple philosophical debate, in her essay, Indigenous Place Thought and the Agency Amongst Humans and Non-Humans, or First Woman and Sky Woman Go on a European World Tour, Indigenous writer of the Mohawk tribe's bear clan, Vanessa Watts, writes how this epistemological-ontological divide, unique to modern Western thought, what I've been calling the cult of logic, is more insidious than it seems when one considers how this dogmatic rationality excludes ethnic and cultural outsiders. In other words, this cult of logic which holds all of us back is not only misguided, but carries damaging implications as well, including the way this strict divide between real and imaginary displaces and excludes indigenous ways of thinking and being. Watts explains the indigenous concept of place thought, which is the non-distinctive space where place and thought were never separated because they never could or can be separated. Place thought is based upon the premise that land is alive and thinking, and that humans and non-humans derive agency through the extensions of these thoughts. She reinforces that the cult of logic creates a system in which her indigenous religion and beliefs cannot exist as real, and only as imaginary, as exemplified in the fact that we often call such stories myth, as we often do with pre-modern belief systems all over the globe from Norway to Japan. Again, bringing to mind Thoreau's parable of dinner, and our position that words have been used to both subtly and overtly demarcate the real from the imaginary. One of the many salient points of indigenous place thought is that it encourages communication in symbiosis with the land we inhabit, whereas the cult of logic creates an exclusionary relationship with nature in which only humans have agency. Watts goes on to write, The man-made distinction between what and how and why, imaginary and real, is not an innocent one. If we lay this framing atop of nature, humankind is elevated outside or above the natural world. The reasoning being that perception is a gift or trait bestowed to the human mind, and most certainly not possessed by something like a stone or a river. A river may act, i.e. flow, but does it perceive or contemplate this? An Anishinaabe perspective would respond in the affirmative. As we can see from the process of colonization and the imposition of the epistemology-ontology frame, our communication and obligations with other beings of creation is continuously interrupted. The immediate relevance of this single case study among many lies in the fact that it doesn't only give indigenous peoples a way out of precarious epistemological situations, this illogical divide between the imaginary and real offered by the cult of logic. For Watts goes on to explain, these types of historical indigenous events, what we would previously call myths, are increasingly becoming not only accepted by Western frameworks of understanding, but sought after in terms of non-oppressive and provocative or interesting interfaces of accessing the real. This traces indigenous peoples not only as epistemologically distinct, but is also a gateway for non-indigenous thinkers to reimagine their world. As musicologists, musicians, lovers of music alike, I believe we should seize this opportunity presented by Thoreau, Arsic, Bennett, Watts, and so many more working in new materialism to reimagine our world, that of music, in a way that we are not only uncomfortable with at first, but in a way that inspires us and future generations to believe in the power of our art in a meaningful way. Not through critique, not through deconstruction, not through skepticism, but through the belief that there is a power in the materiality of music that is greater than ourselves and the understanding that logic is not some celestially derived gift of objectivity, 
but as a carefully constructed system of thought to validate those in power. Music deserves better, and we deserve better. Thank you for listening.